Okay, good morning, everybody. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not 11, 1. So it's, a, it's been a week and a first uh, right now. By the way, is my first time wearing this little contraption. It's a new microphone. Hope, um, yeah, it's, it's loud. Um, I'm hopefully that uh, it, it will provide us um, better uh, online recording. So if you haven't, uh, if you're not in the habit, when you, if you're not in service um, of going to the website and, and seeing the, the, the MP3 files that we have there, the, the streaming um, uh, audio that we have of the sermons, please check that out. Uh, Mark is uh, awesome at putting those up every week. Um, it's also the first time uh, this morning I had the privilege of preaching um, at the 8 o'clock and the 11 o'clock service at St. Hilda's Episcopal Church. It was my first opportunity um, to preach um, in, in that context, and I was very grateful and uh, honored and privileged uh, to be a part of that. Um, and also, this past weekend, I have had the, uh, it was my first time attending the Festival of Preaching uh, at, um, at my school at St. Mary's Ecumenical Institute. Um, it's a, um, a preaching uh, conference uh, that was uh, primarily from um, the African-American preaching traditions. Um, so it was a really uh, fruitful time, um, and it was funny because I had been struggling all day on Friday with this heartburn. Um, I don't know, I'm probably eating too much pizza. I'm definitely eating too much pizza. But um, I was struggling with heartburn all day long, and I kept trying to say, like, oh, you know, I've got to stop by 7-Eleven. I've got to get some Tums. I've got to get something that will help me with the, this heartburn. But I just, you know, I didn't have any cash on me. I was like, I don't want to stop by 7-Eleven just to get a little thing of Tums, you know, and put it on a credit card and, you know, all that. So, you know, I'll just put it off, I'll put it off, put it off. So I get to St. Mary's, and I still haven't stopped, and I'm like, my heart is, like, burning. And then we're actually, actually in, you can't make this stuff up, we're in the prayer group, and we're holding hands with everybody, and the worship leader's up there, and she says, um, Lord, just your spirit can stir among us so that somebody here is going to walk out that door and say, did not our heart burn within us? And I said, yeah, that was for me, Lord. That was for me. So, 1 Corinthians, God is faithful. Um, in a world of infidelity, God is faithful. In a world of fear, God is faithful. In a world of pain, God is faithful. In a world of politics and war and oppression, God is faithful. In a world where it is so easy for the church to fail to be the church, God continues to be faithful. And in a world of humanity's occasional hints of faithfulness, God is still faithful. And that might be a peculiar thing to point out, that God is faithful even during those times when humanity, humanity manages to get it right. But the grander narrative is that we can rest in the truth that God's faithful sovereignty is not affected by our ability to do right by him. No, God is faithful to us, in us, and through us all the time. Even, and perhaps especially when, he's turning our stumbles into dance. This is the truth that will help us guard against any lie which suggests that God's faithfulness can be defined either by his support of the holy or his judgment of the wicked. No, God's faithfulness is defined by his grace, which flows from his character, his character that is holy, 
his character that is loving, his character that is just. This is why Paul begins the letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God for the people who are attempting to live out that King Jesus way of life in Corinth. If you were writing a letter in the first century, uh, much like if you were writing a letter in the 21st century, and you planned on challenging the recipient's behavior, you might include a brief approach like this, a brief approach toward common ground. Common ground in order to invite their favor, the recipient's favor upon your words, in order to let your recipient know that before it gets hard, I'm going to offer something um, before you that should be easy to grasp. Before we start to walk through the, the thick, dark forest, I'm going to show you the pathway through it. And I'm going to let you see that God's got this. And together, we're called into this thing called the church. Yesterday. Yesterday was the 53rd anniversary of the night that civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. found himself incarcerated in a Birmingham jail on the trumped-up charge of parading in protest without a permit. He had read a statement while he was in jail from eight fellow clergy members who had called King's protests unwise and untimely. So then sitting in a jail cell, he starts pulling together whatever scraps of newspaper and paper that he could find, and he begins to write this in response to them. He says, my dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of such a day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since that I feel, since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely put forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. King wrote to them that the reason he was in Birmingham in the first place was because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It was for good reason that he was in Birmingham protesting, and in truth, the people he was there to stand with, um, uh, stand with had been treated with anything but patient and reasonable terms. His home had been bombed. Uh, his children had been threatened. He had been told through the systematic oppression of his own country, a country whose foundational documents spoke of unalienable truths of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and the equality of all mankind, that he and his kindred were second-class citizens. He had run out of patience. But he took the higher road, and he began his letter with an appeal to common ground, the common ground of genuine goodwill. He wanted to talk with them as a fellow human being, and as a fellow minister of the gospel. And then, and then he writes one of the most passionate pieces of civil rights literature that should be impossible to read with a dry eye because he wants to challenge the recipient's behavior. See, Paul, Paul wants to challenge the Corinthians' behavior. 
The Corinthian church was a mess. In the midst of their community was dissension, uh, division, legal disputes, abuses of the Lord's Supper, and controversies about the resurrection. Perhaps most stinging was Paul's exhortations regarding sexual immorality. In one instance, regarding a guy who was known to be sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul says that this is sexual immorality of a kind that is not even among the pagans. He wasn't just breaking biblical law, he was, he was breaking Roman law. So yeah, the Corinthian church was in a mess. But Paul, Paul wants to start his letter with some common ground. And he does so through that lens of thanksgiving. He says, starting in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because, that's an interesting, I, I love that. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and in knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will also strengthen you to the end so that you might be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. This section, says one commentator, artfully foreshadows many of the issues that Paul will address in the letter as a whole. There are three important aspects to the apostle's argument here. First, Paul is stressing the free gift of God's grace in the lives of the Corinthians. We're only up to verse 9, and he's already mentioned God six times, and he's mentioned Jesus nine times. Paul wants to make it crystal clear that it is God's faithfulness at work, and he is setting up his challenge to the church in Corinth that they are to, and get this, live into the faithfulness of God. They have the freedom to live into the faithfulness of God. It's true that the church in Corinth had been experiencing enrichment in speech and in knowledge, but and Paul, like, like Paul says, he, he points out that the testimony of Christ, this gospel message, um, which is their duty to proclaim, has been strengthened. Um, later on in chapter 12, Paul will speak in more detail regarding the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, souls are being saved. Lives are being changed. The anticipation of the kingdom of God is being lived out in their midst because of the work that they are doing to spread the name of Jesus. But make no mistake. Paul says, your talent, your efforts, your effectiveness, your brilliance are all manifestations of God's grace in and through each one of you. If the Corinthians are enriched, it's because they have been enriched by God. What we know about the city of Corinth is that it was well known for its wealth, but not necessarily for its old money. Rome might be a place where you might find some old money. Uh, families who had passed down money through the generations 
um, Corinth was a port city, and it had a thriving industry. Uh, The city had been destroyed and then abandoned by the Romans in 146 BCE, and then refounded by Julius Caesar in 44 as a Roman colony. Richard Hayes says, many of the colonists would have been former slaves, Roman freedmen who would have discovered in the newly free-founded city opportunities for economic and social advancement not available to them elsewhere. It also hosted the, uh, the Ismithian Games, I'm not pronouncing that wrong, second biggest games of the empire next to the Olympics. It was a city where a person could make a living if they worked hard. Paul probably loved it there with his tent-making business. The church in Corinth may not have been overflowing with affluence, but they most likely had a few folks in the congregation who were people of means. Hayes goes on to say, In our reading of Paul's letter, it'll be useful to remember that he was writing to a church in a city only a few generations removed from its founding by colonists seeking upward mobility. In this respect, it's significant. It, there is significant analogy between Paul's Corinthian readers and American readers of this commentary. When I think about the incredible, remarkable, awesome people in this room right now, I am in awe and I'm reminded of what human beings can accomplish. You all blow my mind with your intelligence and your passion for community, your entrepreneurial skills, and the way you unapologetically pour your life into your kids. I'm also reminded repeatedly of the spiritual maturity that exists in this room right now. But our strength, our wisdom, our knowledge, if they are indeed good things, then that means that they are manifestations of God's grace in and through each one of us. And he gets the glory. The second piece to Paul's vision is the hope and trust. The second piece of Paul's common ground approach is the hope and trust that God will strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, the history of the church has seemed anything but blameless. War, rape, murder, injustice of unfathomable proportions, all of these fill the pages of church history. When we read about such historical chapters, it's, it's easy for us to lose focus. It's, it's easy for us to assume that mankind's horrific failure to honor the dignity of one another is reason enough to segregate ourselves into our own church communities, keep our heads down, and wait for God to one day rescue us from this wicked earth. But that's not the story the Bible tells. The last picture in Scripture is not of God saving the righteous and transporting them off to some alternate dimension. Revelation 21 paints the picture of this cosmic reconciliation where God will strengthen us to the end, wherein King Jesus sets up his divine rule and reign on earth that will provide the ultimate triumph over the powers of evil and death. It is the hope of that reality which is to fuel the church's patience and trust that God will strengthen them to the end. Paul's tone may change throughout the Corinthian correspondence, but in this passage, his message is not of warning and exhortation, it's of thankfulness for God's faithfulness 
made manifest in the work of Jesus in the community. For in Christ, we have the freedom to live into the hope and life of God's new created order. I'm in, uh, I'm in seminary now, you all know, so let me tell you what you're all paying for. And I'll drop some big words on you. Eschatology is the key to New Testament soteriology. Turn to your neighbor, say, he's talking to you. Eschatology, the study of the end times, or what's to come, the hope part of the name of our church, should be seen in light of what some scholars call inaugurated eschatology. There's a new world a-coming, and it's already here. Jesus will ultimately come to consummate his rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven, and he's already on the throne. Jesus is king, and you have the freedom to start living like it today. So in light of that, salvation, soteriology is the study of how salvation works, is then, get this, past, present, and future. In our text today, Paul is telling the church in Corinth that their salvation is all at the same time a past event, a present experience, and a future hope. The God who has been nothing but faithful in your past is now bringing your future hope into your present reality. And the best thing is you get to live, each one of us gets to live like that's the truth. We get to live into God's faithfulness because Jesus is king and he's already on the throne. Maybe you're here this morning and there was darkness in your past. And you know that as bad as it was back then and back there, whether it was some pain that was beyond your control or maybe sin that was nobody's fault but your own, you have to admit that God was faithful enough, at least, at least God was faithful enough to bring you here on this beautiful day that we call April 17, 2016. See, what I know for certain is that it's like 70 degrees and sunny outside. Looks like all of you are breathing. And you're about to be offered some coffee and donuts. But I'd be willing to bet, I'd be willing to bet, that no matter how dark it was back then and back there, if you're honest with yourself, you've tasted God's faithfulness. You've experienced joys that could only be described as gifts from God's gracious hands. You can feel that he has been a part of your life this whole time. If you can get to that place of thanksgiving for God's work in your life, in your past, then the good news is, whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're just now maybe starting to take your faith seriously, the truth is this, in Christ is life. John Calvin said, that the whole sum of our salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. No matter how dark your past was, God wants nothing more for you than to be redeemed through Christ today and welcomed into the future that he has for you. Living into God's faithfulness means we walk with Jesus because in Christ, it is in Christ that we will be strengthened to the end and then blameless 
on the day of our Lord. And then that leads to Paul's last point, found in verse 9, where he wants to stress the importance of koinonia, the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Hayes tells us that the funny thing about the term koinonia um, is that it is ambiguous as to whether it's referring to the spiritual relationship to Jesus Christ, the, the, um, the relationship, the fellowship that I have, me with God, or each one of us with God, or the fellowship, the koinonia, of the community of people who are called in relationship with each other. And, and that's, that's not a coincidence. For Paul, there is an intimate relationship between the connection we have with Christ and then the fellowship we have with each other. To be in Christ is to be the fellowship of the church. One of the most remarkable aspects of the early church was its ability to break down social barriers, social barriers of class and race and gender. The early church knew that the God-given things which unite us are eternally greater than those petty things which divide us. In Christ, in Christ, I'm your brother. In Christ, I owe you my life. I owe you my life prayerfully. I owe you my life practically. And I owe you my life sacrificially. We have a responsibility to be the church. I was reading... Um, World Relief's website a while back. They're holding an event this week that we're going to, I'm going to, and Amy. Um, and World Relief reports that there are currently in the, that we are currently in the midst of the greatest refugee crisis in history, with some 60 million people worldwide forcibly displaced from their homes because of war and violent political control or natural disaster. A third of them 20 million people forced to live outside their home countries. This is a crisis that I confess I know very little about, and I've done very little about. Millions of people are desperate for protection and surrounded by the unfamiliar. Many of them victims of torture. Many of them not sure where their next meal will come from. Not to mention their desire to be a part of a society and to provide for their families. About 70,000 refugees have come to America over the past few years, and when they get here, they face challenges of learning English and gaining employment and finding housing and integrating themselves into American society. This, as you can imagine, is an uphill battle. What organization could there possibly be to help such a person? World Relief's vision is to partner every refugee with a local church because the local church is the hope of the world. The refugee crisis we're facing in the world today, it's just one opportunity for the church to be the church, to take a stand for the vulnerable and believe that God will work through his people. And all of that, all of this is in God's timing and under the sovereignty of God's grace. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this Christian brotherhood that we're called to, it's not an ideal that we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ 
in which we may participate. God is faithful, and he will strengthen us to the end. Let us live into that faithfulness by being the church, faithful to his calling, cheerful in his service, fruitful for his kingdom. We're under no obligation to settle for anything less than the faithfulness of our sovereign God. Until he returns, he wants us to proclaim the free gift of his grace with our words and with our hands. One that welcomes the stranger and feeds the hungry and clothes the naked. We are free to live a life of faith, hope, and love and speak the truth of the gospel to a world which is desperate for protection, to a world which is surrounded by the unfamiliar because we are the church and we know that God is faithful to the end. Let me pray for you. Good Father, your faithfulness strengthens us. Your faithfulness keeps us in awe. Your faithfulness is so unbelievably remarkable to a people, to a people who repeatedly insult you to a people who repeatedly go their own way, to repeatedly see this path that you've led out before us. Please take this road, you say. No, I think I'll do it my own way. Please, Father, be with us in our moment of confession and help us realize that you are the way, you are that truth, you are the light of our path. I pray that Whatever it is, whatever garbage, whatever darkness, whatever sin and, 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 and addictions and whatever there is in this room, I just pray that my brothers and sisters here would know that they are not defined by that past. They are defined by your future through them, which they are free to live out today. I pray that you would be amongst our community that we would be the church, that you would remind us repeatedly of how we've got it wrong and keep us back on true north, to put us back on the path of being the church that you would have, that we're, that we're making disciples of all nations and we're baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we know that you will be with us and that you will strengthen us to the end. That's the message that we have. That's the message that we get that we have the freedom, we have the gift to proclaim to the world. We have the gift of looking out our front door and saying that in Christ is life. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.